Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, my name is Jan-Klein Heisterkamp. It's a pleasure to welcome you today at this um, event, which at first sight looks very much like um, a lecture, because we have <laughs> this lecture theater. Um, <clears throat> but actually, I think we have a very exciting evening in front of us. <clears throat> Uh, this event is called Rethinking Investment Treaty Law uh, from a policy perspective. And um, actually the idea for this event came up when um, <coughs> I was somewhat involved in the works at the European Parliament on the <coughs> draft regulation uh, for transitional arrangements for the existing BACTs of member states with third countries where all of a sudden there was a move in, try, in, the, in attempts to modify, to amend the, uh, the draft proposal of the Commission when there were proposals to put into the uh, recitals of the draft regulation that any new investment treaty concluded by the European Union, which would then substitute the existing BITs with a given third country, would have to either provide the best possible protection to uh, European investors or enshrine what they, some people call the best practices, sorry, the best European practices in investment treaty law. Um, and that gave me the idea of thinking, well, wait a minute, is what we have in Europe actually representative for what one could call best practices? Or are European best practices actually really what could be global best practices? And my feeling was that it might not be the case. And um, getting in touch with some of the speakers tonight, I realized that in their respective countries, um, there is just a tremendous experience of discussion that has been going on now for quite a while, partially leading to results, partially ongoing. And um, in order to feed into the discussion in Europe, I thought it would be very helpful to have a look outside of Europe. So what we are having tonight is five short presentations um, on the developments in five different countries. We are having, on the one hand, and I'm that's what happens when one is not prepared. Um, we're having tonight, in a different order than announced originally, we are having um, from the United States. Mr. Pavla, uh, David Pavlak, who is a former um, attorney advisor at the U.S. State Department and who will give us a little insight into what happened in the U.S. previously to 2004 and since. We will have also the view of Margaret Norum, who is a senior legal advisor at the Ministry of um, Trade and Industry of Norway. A long process has taken place there. Um, we have also Mr. Randall Williams, Chief Director of the South, Africa, the South African Trade and Industry Department, um, and Alvaro Galindo, who is a former head litigator at the Attorney General's Office of Ecuador, and finally Adam Shepard who is a senior economic, economic advisor at the Australian Productivity Commission, which has led to quite some uproar lately. The idea is that we let these five gentlemen, oh, sorry, and of course I have to introduce Jansen Kalamita, who is honoring us today by being the co-moderator for the debate.
today. And um, I also wanted to point out that an LSE PhD, finishing PhD student, Lauga Paulsen, with whose works some of you will probably be familiar, um, is also invited to be an agent provocateur to stir the discussion. Um, the idea is we have five presentations and then give the opportunity of the panel to discuss among each other so then afterwards to open the floor to everyone. And the idea is that after the presentations, each of them will have the opportunity to also tease their colleagues, which I think should be an efficient way of getting down to the interesting points. Without further ado, a little word by Janssen, and um, thank you for coming. Thank you, Jan. Uh, not much to add to, to what you've said, um, except perhaps to introduce myself to those of you who don't know me. I'm the director of the Investment Treaty Forum at the British Institute of International and Comparative Law. And I was at the seminar which Jan organized in the fall at which these issues were raised, particularly with respect to the current discussions in the European Union. Um, and whether or not there are best practices and how the EU might go about determining what they are um, as it begins to think about what a future EU bit looks like. Um, just to put this perhaps in a little bit more of context, I think this also dovetails not only into what the EU is doing in terms of drafting its bits, but what other states might do with respect to its bit their bit practice in terms of whether they stay with a sleek, trim, uh, four, five, six-page model, or they move to the more detailed models that we find in North America and in some parts of Asia. Um, and that was heightened, I th highlighted, I think, by the discussion at the Investment Treaty Forum a couple of weeks ago where we talked about whether or not there's a custom of international investment law. And it strikes me that uh, given that so many existing bits depend upon a still relatively indeterminate and contested uh, notion of customary norms um, moving in the direction that some of the states we're going to hear from tonight have done, which is to say uh, greater detail in the enunciation of the uh, obligations of the state uh, may be a direction which more states wish to take as they go forward. So thank you very much. I'm interested to hear the discussion. Uh, facilitating U.S. outbound investors' um, claims, essentially, against uh, uh, foreign states. Um, in that role, as uh, I will elaborate during the, the talk, um, it became very much aware to the State Department legal office writ large that the real repository for useful input to the bit policy and bit negotiations was on the four or five member team on which I participated in defending the cases. And I'll, I'll get into to why that was in just a moment. But before going any further, I wanted to say thank you very much to uh, Jan for hosting this uh, very timely event and to Jan Sin uh, from uh, the Investment Treaty Forum for uh, 
bring him into uh, what I said was, like I said, is a very important and timely uh, issue, I think, to take, take up. Um, but I found the preliminary remarks quite interesting, and um, the, the notion of the question, I suppose it was, is um, are there European best practices? I'm going to start with a bit of a provocation to say absolutely no, there are not, and at least not universally across Europe. And I'm going to go ahead and explain why I think that is, um, hoping that my Norwegian colleague won't uh, nudge me off the, the edge of the podium here before I'm done. Uh, anyway, in this 15-minute um, slot that we've been uh, allotted, I'm going to, to try and be brief and set a stage for our later discussion. Specifically, I want to focus on a few milestones in U.S. bit policy. And second, I want to highlight some of the drivers of that policy and describe how it's evolved over time. And I think in describing that evolution, there might be an explanation as to why I said no, there are not European, well, there may be European best practices, but they aren't the global best practices. Uh, as we consider the remarks today and matters of bit policy generally, I think there are two rather important questions to keep in mind with respect to the particular policy perspective that's being advocated or discussed. And the first is, is the speaker, and it might be interesting to apply this set of questions to this panel, the question, first question is, is the speaker from a traditional capital importer or capital exporter, or both possibly in the case of uh, our colleague here from South Africa? And the second question I think will elicit some interesting uh, thoughts uh, is, does the speaker hail from a country that has been on the receiving end of an investor claim? Or has that speaker's state been focused exclusively on protecting outbound investors? And that seems to be the case more so with at least the old 15 EU states, which may give an answer to, to why I don't believe they're the best practices are in, uh, being employed in Europe. But these, these two questions, or the answers to these two questions, I think in large part uh, play a pl primary role in driving a bit, uh, state's bit policy. And what I hope to highlight in the next few minutes is that the U.S. bits and U.S. bit policy have followed a very interesting trajectory. And initially, the U.S. bits, in my view and the view of some others who have studied it more closely than I, uh, is that the bits were essentially a tool of ideology of imposing the U.S. economic policy on other states. And at that period, in the early phase of the U.S. bit program, there were essentially absolutely no defensive concerns or risks from the perspective of the policymakers in Washington. Now, more recently, as reflected in the 2004 model bit and some of the tinkering with the treaties that have come after, uh, we, un we now see that the U.S. approach reflects substantial unease about the direction that certain investor state claims and outcomes have taken. And in particular, that has prompted the U.S. to set about on a course to, to give much greater specificity to the bits and to limit the discretion available to arbitrators in deciding how to interpret and apply those bits. 
And as I want to highlight at the conclusion of my talk, this U.S. trajectory has produced some very interesting results, in my view, not only for U.S. policy, but arguably also for the BIT policies of other states, not including Europe for the most part. Let me just run through a brief historical overview, essentially a periodization of U.S. BIT policy, and I'll try and make this, this quick so we can focus on the more substantive aspect of this. Essentially, the U.S. decided to engage in a BIT program in 1977, and over the next four years, the U.S. worked up a model bit. It was essentially the template that it would go to any negotiation with. Now, interestingly, although the first bit was between Germany and Pakistan in 1959, uh, it, there is evidence and there's some credibility to the notion that the first model bit, in other words, the bit that was published to the world as this is our bit policy, was put forward by the United States. And that effectively communicated to the world that this is both to the world and, and to U.S. bit partners and prospective bit partners that this is the way that the U.S. saw the bits and that's how they should be uh, adopted in their final form. Now, Professor Kenneth Vandeveld, who to my best recollection and maybe Janssen Kalamita can confirm, was once an attorney advisor at the U.S. State Department like both Janssen and, and I. Uh, were uh, attorney advisors of the State Department some years ago. But he has uh, identified three waves of U.S. negotiations based on three distinct model bits. The first wave of negotiations was undertaken pursuant to this 1981 model, the first very rudimentary model. And it was slightly modified a couple of times, and then in 1984 there was a new model that tried to take into account some, let's say, relatively minor uh, changes based on operational experience. And then the next model bit uh, uh, came about in 1994, and that served as the basis for the third wave of investment treaties entered into by the United States. Now, incidentally, in 1994 was the same year that the North American Free Trade Agreement entered into force. And in the North American Free Trade Agreement, Chapter 11, uh, we have the investment chapter, so essentially it's a, it's a bit within a, an FTA. And this is when things started to really get interesting. Because the NAFTA not only amounted to essentially a great leap forward in terms of its level of sophistication and detail, just by way of example, um, I'll, I'll come back to that, but um, what's interesting about the, the, the NAFTA is that it was the first instance uh, in which the U.S. had entered into a treaty with a uh, partner like Canada, which is the s second or third largest source of investment in into the United States. So I'll come back to talk about some of the significance of that particular fact, but uh, for the moment let me just run through the last couple of phases of the U.S. BIT program. Uh, the next, after the 1994 model, was the 2004 model BIT, which uh, adopted a number of uh, solutions that were identified during the, the uh, defense of claims pursuant to the NAFTA treaty. And what's interesting, that particular um, model, uh, which was uh, implemented pursuant to the Trade Promotion Authority by the U.S. Congress of 2002, it set out very specific and strict negotiating objectives for any treaties that would be entered into pursuant to that model. 
just to give you a quick sense of the kind of elaboration that uh, took place between 1994 and 2000, you know, the, the model bid of 1994 was 20 pages. The 2004 model bid is uh, 40 pages plus annexes. So it went from about 13 articles to 37 articles, giving you an idea of the kind of uh, precision that the policymakers felt was, was necessary. Now, the final and most recent phase of BIT policy is one that was uh, referred to in the, one of the links that uh, Jan had placed along with the LSE flyer about this event. And essentially, that is an insta instance where the Obama administration has undertaken a review of this more detailed 2004 model BIT to see if it's upholding the objectives of U.S. economic policy. Now, I'm not going to talk too much about this current uh, last phase because not only do I think it's not nearly as interesting because it's tinkering with the 2004 model bit on the fringes, but also because it's really more than anything as I understand it, although some years out of the State Department now, uh, it's essentially an exercise in electoral politics. Obama said he was going to do something about these treaties. He needs to be seen to be doing something about these treaties. So with this brief uh, periodization as a backdrop, I want to just highlight briefly this evolving trajectory of BIT policy, from a tool of ideology to an agreement showing caution with respect to investment protection and much greater deference to the quote-unquote proper uh, level of governmental uh, control and regulation. Now, according to yet another uh, former U.S. State Department attorney turned professor, uh, Jose Alvarez, Prior to the 1994 model bit, he, he uh, has written an article demonstrating that uh, ideology drove the bit policy in the U.S. And specifically, he points out that the preambular language addressing, for example, reciprocal flows of investment, uh, in his words, uh, is, quote, unquote, was something of a fraud. Um, and the list of these early U.S. bits is uh, rather telling and of note. So through 1989, some of the uh, U.S. BIT partners included Haiti, Morocco, Panama, Senegal, Turkey, Zaire, Cameroon, Egypt, Bangladesh, and Grenada. Grenada, you'll recall, is the tiny island state that Ronald Reagan had the Marines uh, invade for fear of the uh, encroaching uh, communistic uh, uh, pressures on, the, on Washington. Um, you can imagine what kind of negotiation that was three years after the uh, invasion. At, at any rate, um, during this early period of the U.S. BIT program, these states were lesser developed states. They did not have a precursor to the BITS treaties known as Friends, Friendship, Navigation, and Commerce treaties in place. And they, uh, in the eyes of Washington, worse yet, had previously supported uh, the new international economic order initiatives in the United Nations. So from that perspective, the goal of the U.S. government was to impose regulation on these foreign direct investment host states. And the way that the U.S. government set out to do that was through adopting bits with these countries that really were uh, not in any way going to pose any kind of threat in terms of claims against the United States. First of all, those countries didn't have any investment to speak of in the United States. Moreover, those countries, uh, even if they had some investment, 
weren't likely to bring the resources to bear to challenge the United States in an investor state uh, uh, arbitration. Now that theory or approach has certainly borne itself out because there has been no bit claim against the United States. There's only been claims under the North American Free Trade Agreement and specifically the only investment treaty claims against the United States have been claims brought by Canadian investors. So essentially in this early period the U.S. was essentially assured of compliance with its bits obligations and according to another commentator uh, the goal of those bits were to quote to restrain the host country from action against the interest of investors and many uh, who were involved in the negotiations at the time I heard anecdotally from some of the old timers if I may at the State Department when I was there essentially described those no negotiations as more of an intensive training seminar for their counterparts as, as to how to adhere to the U.S. model, not a negotiation between sovereign equals. More broadly, this uh, approach in the early phase of the U.S. BIT program has been argued that you know, the U.S. essentially saw the BITs as a way to lock in these states to the U.S. worldview on some international law issues and economic, international economic po policy. By way of example, um, the whole formula for compensation for expropriation is one of the policies that the BITs sought to uh, implement and, and secure in a permanent way by entering into these BITs. Now, interestingly, now that then the NAFTA comes along in 1994, and consistent with this notion that I've been describing about the purpose of the BITs, it is said that the NAFTA states in particular Canada and the United States saw the NAFTA and particularly its investment chapter and the investor state arbitration mechanism therein as a means to protect against the vagaries as, as perceived of the Mexican judiciary. So the whole idea of chapter 11's investor state dispute mechanism was okay let's provide a mechanism to our investors to stay out of the mess that is the Mexican courts. That's just to put it rather bluntly. So, surprise, surprise, uh, although there had been no expectation really or preparation for claims against the United States under this North American Free Trade Agreement, that calculation proved to be very much incorrect. And to some extent I'm grateful for that because it provided me with a very interesting job for several years uh, just down the hall from Janssen Calameda. So, uh, but as the actual results after the, the NAFTA entered into force uh, came into light, it was clear that there was going to be substantial reliance by U.S. investors against Canada and Canadian investors against the U.S. on the investor state dispute resolution mechanism. In my view, it is that phenomena within North America that has had a dramatic effect on U.S. bit policy. And in fact, postulate this evening and we'll await rebuttals, that uh, phenomena of claims as between the two North American states has resulted in pretty dramatic changes of, in bit policy around the world, but not in Europe. Now, I don't intend to be heard to be sounding the alarm bells about investor state claims. There are many NGOs in the United States that do that, and I think they often do that on misguided Informa uh, mis it's misguided or it's based on misinformation. That's not my, 
my point here. It's simply to say that the fact of these cases resulted in pretty dramatic shifts in the way that the U.S. approached its bids. As I said, Canada is the second or third largest source of investment in the United States. It's very proximate, obviously, and very familiar with the U.S. litigation um, approach and has access to the U.S. Uh, you know, bar uh, in order to bring cases. So what we, what we saw was a, a curious confluence of events that essentially was a wake-up call for the United States government that the obligations in investment treaties run on a two-way street. And so, of course, that required that the U.S. take action. And what the U.S. decided to do in the 2004 model bit was to adopt a number of essentially remedial measures to guard against many of the concerns that arose out of these claims against the United States. Just taking one example of a case that I, I worked on, it's the Methanex versus USA case. It's essentially a claim by a Canadian producer of an ingredient that goes into a gas additive to try to, and that additive essentially uh, limits pollution from automobiles. Now, there was a law adopted by California banning that particular additive because they said it spoiled the groundwater in California. And the claimant said that that was, in fact, a disguised uh, discriminatory preference for ethanol producers. Of course, ethanol coming from the heartland's uh, corn uh, production for the most part. Um, now, the environmental groups and NGOs really jumped on the bandwagon because this claim was for about a billion U.S. dollars, billion with a B, and many people were saying that that was freezing the U.S. governments and the states, U.S. states, uh, right to regulate. And the, the mere fact of that claim pending in the eyes of many in the uh, NGO world and environmental uh, groups was you know, a demonstration that the bits had you know, run amok and everything was uh, you know, bad and evil in connection with the, with the investment treaties. Um, we defeated that case and were award, we were awarded four million U.S. in costs, um, and, and which was paid. Um, so clearly, the, the mere you know pendency of that claim wasn't uh, you know did not warrant this uh, level of um, concern that was expressed by many. However, those voices did have, and I think productively had uh, influence on the Congress and. What the Congress did was adopt this law setting out specific negotiating objectives for the U.S. And essentially that resulted in a changed model bit. I'm not sure how much time I have, but I'll just highlight the categories of these changes. Okay. Uh, essentially, the, the, the new model bit set out explicitly, and that's why we went from 20 to you know, 40 pages plus annexes, clarified the standards, such as the customary international uh, law minimum standard of treatment in the U.S. context, the fair and equitable treatment provision was tied very specifically to customary international law minimum standard of treatment. And that resulted from a very specific circumstance in the NAFTA cases. So it was the operational experience in defending the cases that prompted the government to say, okay, all bits from now on are going to make it clear to the arbitrators that we're not allowing a freestanding interpretation of the fair and equitable treatment provision. Rather, there must be a demonstration of a customary international law rule violation. 
Other changes that were evident in the 2004 model bit included transparency measures, efforts to improve the efficiency and the deterring of frivolous claims, and methods to make for a more consistent interpretation across agreements. I won't go through those in detail. We can touch on them later in the conversation if there's time and there's interest. But essentially, each of these categories of change in the most recent and currently in play U.S. model bit were driven by the experience from the NAFTA and specifically the claims brought by Canadian investors against the U.S. So those were essentially the four categories of change. But I'll move to a conclusion here, which will hopefully spark some further discussion. Essentially, this effort on the part of the U.S. to make the bits much more specific and limit the discretion of arbitral tribunals interpreting and applying these bits still divides various interest groups in the U.S. today. There are those who, particularly in civil society groups and developmental and human rights NGOs that have concerns that the foreign investment is not sufficiently controlled and has encroached too much on the state's right to regulate. There are others in the business lobby side of things that think that the expansion or greater specification of the U.S. model bit has put U.S. business at a great disadvantage as compared to their European counterparts who have access to investment protection that is not with such great specification as in the U.S. One example is the interpretation of the fair and equitable treatment provision. So they want a more expansive bit. They don't want this specification or detailing being put into place. But my conclusion from this impasse that has effectively resulted, in essence, this Obama administration review that I mentioned as the final phase of the periodization of the U.S. bit program, has essentially resulted in not much because these two groups are essentially pitted against each other and the luminaries who are on this bit review panel are unable to come to any real consensus about any of the serious issues. And so we have a review, and that's what it is. It's not really a policy. It's just a review. And then a final conclusion that I'll note is that this U.S. bit policy trajectory from ideology to proper balance, perhaps, between right to regulate and investor protection has had some pretty far-reaching implications. For example, ICSID, the International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, which administers many of these bit cases, has actually adopted in its own rules some of these same initiatives that first showed themselves in the NAFTA practice. Others they considered at ICSID but did not adopt. But what's even more interesting to my mind is that many states have, in fact, also adopted this reaction that the U.S. government has had as a result of these Canadian claims. And that includes, obviously, Canada and Mexico, both of which have quite substantial bit programs. But what's quite fascinating to me is that that same kind of specification has extended to other states which 
really would not, in, a, in the first uh, thought, be considered to be likely to follow a U.S. model. And with some of these kinds of revisions to the bit, uh, you find them in uh, treaties entered into, or model texts, in fact, uh, France, Colombia, Chile, I would say Norway, but I think I would be corrected, but I think they had a model which adopted some of these ideas. And even China, strangely enough, has adopted many of the same kinds of provisions that you find in, in the U.S. bits. So with the time running uh, very short, just revert to my initial uh, pair of questions, including whether the state in question is a capital importer or capital exporter, and whether the state has been on the, on the receiving end of investor claims, and suggest that that has had a substantial effect on the trajectory of BIT policy. And in fact, uh, in my view, I think that substantial claims against the old 15 EU states might uh, bring about even greater convergence globally to include the European states so that they too adopt some of the best practices uh, from the NAFTA experience. Thanks very much. Yes, uh, my name is Marietta Nurium and I'm from the Ministry of Trade and Industry in Norway. Uh, Norway is a European country, but it is not a part of the European Union. It's a part of the EEA agreement. So it's, uh, it's not part of the Lisbon Treaty, and we have our own policy for, for investment treaties. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank you for inviting me here today. It is very interesting for me to, to listen to the other uh, panelists about their policies. It's very rare that we get to discuss this without being in negotiation mode, so it's, it's really interesting for us. And I hope we can get some good comments from you in the audience as well later. Uh, Norway has not entered into any bilateral protection, investment protection agreements as such since the mid-90s. Before that, we did uh, adopt the traditional, I would like to call it the OECD model, not the US model. But, uh, but we have some old traditional uh, BITs. But uh, in the mid-90s, it was decided that we had some uh, um, both policy concerns or political concerns and also some constitutional concerns with the agreements, and, and, and we terminated the practice of negotiating them. And in, in 2006, uh, it was decided that we should try to find uh, a new policy for, for uh, BITs, and, and a working group was established uh, which, was, uh, which had representation from uh, various ministries, and I chaired that group. And we worked for two years uh, on new uh, model BIT. Uh, we sent the general template on, on public hearing in 2008. It's, it's uh, available on the <coughs> internet if you are interested. Uh, and it was presented to the government early in 2009. At that stage, the government decided that we should not go ahead with uh, the efforts to formulate a general template, but only considered the need uh, for and the design of provisions on investment protection based on the model agreement in connection with the negotiation of some specific free trade agreements. So the future prospect of the template is quite uncertain, and it will be influenced by the political situation in Norway, but also by the international debate in this area, especially in the EU, I would think. Uh, however, however, I will share with you some of the considerations and solutions that we uh, adopted in 2006 to 2008. Uh, it was quite a lot inspired by the NAFTA. So uh, 
many of the same areas that you, that you mentioned uh, are included. Yeah, and the mandate given to us was to strike a better balance between the rights and obligations of the investor than in the traditional BITs and to safeguard the right to regulate for the host state while providing an adequate level of protection for the investors. Uh, we aimed to make sure that investment promotion and protection would not be pursued at the expense of other key policy objectives. We also had extensive discussions on to what extent the treaty should include obligations for the investor. Uh, I will briefly address the various modifications that were made in the text of the original model BIT in order to safeguard these concerns. This might be a bit detailed, but it's sort of to, to show that, that you have to go through the whole, uh, all the provisions to actually adopt uh, a different balance in, in the agreements. In the preamble, we emphasize that due regard should be paid to health, safety, and the environment and internationally recognized labor rights in connection with the goals for increased in investments. The parties confirm their, uh, that they recognize the fundamental principles of transparency, accountability, and legitimacy, and that they will be determined to prevent and combat, combat corruption. The parties further confirm their obligation on the, the United Nations Charter and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Particular emphasis is put on the significance of corporate social responsibility. CSR is also reflected in other provisions, which I will get back to later. The preamble is, of course, not hard law, uh, but it is a statement of motives, purposes, and circumstances, enabling the agreement to be viewed in the correct perspective. And it has a legal significance as a basis for interpreting the agreement. Uh, in the non-discrimination articles, we. Uh, they, they were sort of designed to be in line with the Norwegian regulation and the general principles of administrative law associated with equal, and, uh, with equal treatment and prohibition of unfair discriminat discriminatory treatment. That is the national system in Norway. The Norwegian authorities write an obligation to regulate in important sectors of society on the basis of rational variations should be retained in full recognizing that there may be need to regulate on the basis of important social considerations that could in practice be less favorable for a foreign investor than for a Norwegian investor. There may also be differences arising out of specific discretionary judgments, more stringent requirements over time, and local variations. If the state can document that there are objective grounds for discriminatory treatment, it would not be in conflict with the provisions. So that is sort of a bit different from, from uh, what was at least then uh, the traditional way of formulating the, the national treatment and MFN provisions. Sorry. <coughs> and, and we also added a footnote to the term uh, in like circumstances to make this very clear. And the note reads, the parties agree that measures applied by a government in pursuance of legitimate policy objectives of public interest, such as the protection of public health, safety, and the environment, although having a different effect on an investment or investor of another party, is not inconsistent with national treatment and most favored nation treatment when justified by showing that it bears a reasonable relationship to rational policies, not motivated by preference of domestic over foreign-owned investment. 
is actually one sentence. <laughs> it's quite long. <laughs> uh, this, this footnote should sort of reflect what was at least at that stage uh, the practice of, of the arbitration panels in this area. In the fair and equitable treatment provision, uh, we uh, included a reference to the, um, to the uh, international minimum standard. And, and the reason for us to do so, I think, was the same as the US, to sort of create a threshold and, and to make it uh, not an autonomous standard. <clears throat> the expropriation provision is, a, is a, probably the one that is, uh, or at least one of the most special provisions, because there we have actually um, derived it from Protocol 1, Article 1 of the European Convention for Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms. And it does not have reference to the whole um, it's called whole formula. Whole, whole formula. <laughs> uh, and the, uh, the parties shall not expropriate or nationalize the investments of each other as investors unless this is in the public interest and sub subject to conditions provided for by law and by the general principles of international law. So you could argue whether the whole formula is a part of that, but it, it was uh, intentional not to, to make a specific reference to that. Uh, the Human Rights Convention and general international law were considered to provide appropriate and satisfactory protection of property. These are standards that Norway is already obliged to comply with, both under international law, through the European Human Rights Convention, and person to customary public international law, as well as Norwegian law uh, through the Human Rights Act. These are also standards that are well known from the case law of the European Court of Human Rights. So the reason for doing is, this is to make it very specific that we do not want to, to uh, give uh, better protection for foreigners than we do for, for nationals when we expropriate in Norway. Uh, because the, the uh, legislations that we had on, on, uh, on or that we have on expropriation could be said to deviate from the traditional BITs. So this was to make it very clear. There are also a number of exceptions in the draft model BIT. Uh, and they cover a range of issues, including <coughs> taxation, essential security interests and public order, protection of human health and natural resources, protection of culture and prudential measures for financial services. The general exception clause is based on Article 14 of the, of the GUTS, uh, and certain adjustments have been made to, to adapt it to the, uh, to the investment chapter, and that was inspired by Canada model agreement. <coughs> uh, also, in the investor state dispute settlement, uh, we, we uh, an, um, made some quite big changes from the traditional BITs. Uh, we placed a very big focus on transparency and, and civil society participation. Uh, investor state has been one of the very tricky articles in Norway, and, and the reason why we actually terminated our uh, negotiation of the BIT was because of the investor state provision at least initially. <clears throat> uh, the re request for dispute settlement must contain sufficient information for the parties and the public to be able to familiarize themselves with the issue that are raised in the dispute. All requests for dispute settlement shall be made publicly available by the defendant and the ICSID. And ICSID is the only, uh, only uh, tribunal that can be used. We do not have ad hoc uh, alternatives. <coughs> Sorry. Provisions concerning public hearings have also been included. A transparent arbitration process is essential to ensure the necess necessary legitimacy of the dispute settlement process. 
It is nevertheless important to meet uh, the need both of the investor and the involved states uh, that they may have for confidentiality, uh, and the transparency provision should not result in significant lengthening of or increase in the cost of the arbitration. We have also included a period of three years for the exhaustion of local remedies. As you probably know, the principle in the ICSID Convention is uh, that a requirement regarding exhaustion of national legal remedies must be explicitly stated in the investment agreement. This was one of the issues that was discussed, discussed at length in the group, and we did not actually agree on that, and, and uh, the politicians had to sort of agree on that, because uh, that is uh, a, a very fundamental uh, issue, actually, and, and three years is quite, quite a long time. Uh, but uh, we have a lot of pro and cons, and that can also be found on the internet uh, in an explanatory note to the, to the draft. <clears throat> Finally, we added a new element in order to safeguard extensions of the treaty's obligations beyond the intention of the parties, a little bit inspired by NAFTA. Uh, the Joint Committee is given the right to adopt statements of interpretation on the provision of the agreement. These statements of interpretation will be binding for sub subsequent dispute settlements based on the provision concerned. This is important since it will enable the follow-up of relevant developments in law uh, in connection with arbitration cases associated with this and other agreements, while correcting a development that the parties perceive as problematic. I guess the, the f fair and equitable treatment article in NAFTA and, and the response uh, to that is, is uh, an example of, of how that can be done. Okay, this was a very brief presentation of some of the modifications that we proposed in order to protect uh, the whole state's policy space. Another element that we discussed was whether and how future investment agreements should regulate investors' social responsibility. The argument in favor of such regulation has been to balance the, the rights gained by investors through the invest uh, uh, to the investment agreements by imposing certain obligations on them. Uh, it has been sort of seen as fair that they get extensive rights from these uh, agreements and that they should give something as well. Um, and it is not the irresponsible and ne negligent Norwegian investors that are the target group for the protection in the future investment agreements. And the social responsibility of investors is included by means of an article providing that the parties to the agreement shall strive to ensure that their investors comply with the OECD guidelines <coughs> and that they become members of the UN Global Compact. So this is more uh, on the states than on the investor. Uh, but the investor has to comply with national, national legislation, and that is a requirement for the investor. Furthermore, the Joint Committee shall have the authority to consider issues associated with investors' social responsibility. The objective is to establish an institutional framework that can contribute to increased transparency concerning the investments protected by an investment agreement, and to equip the parties to the agreement with a flexible and practical instrument for following up specific questions concerning the actions of the investor, the host country, or the investment agreement. Not least in order to ensure that implementation of the agreements take place in accordance with its purposes. The parties may decide to grant the Joint Committee authority to function as an appeal body or an ethical council, for example by allowing various organizations to bring the activities of individual investors before the committee. And that is sort of left open in the template. 
The regulation in the Norwegian draft is a soft law approach. It does not make the rights under the, the agreement contingent of the compliance of the guidelines listed. However, it does give a clear signal. The, argument, the arguments against making the provision more stringent, where that CSR should be safeguarded through other and more dynamic instruments, in close cooperation with businesses. There is substantial activity in this field, both nationally and internationally, and it could be unfortunate to link the protection under investment treaties to instruments that are later replaced by others. Investment treaties are first and foremost instruments to promote and protect investments, and it could be argued that one should retain a reasonable division between the systems. It was further argued that making investor protection conditional of investors' compliance with general guidelines and basically voluntary schemes could lead to a highly discretionary process and create an ambiguous and unpredictable legal situation. Furthermore, no other countries has binding CSR obligations in their treaties, and that may be an indication that this is not considered a suitable instrument uh, and that it would be difficult to reach agreement with other countries on these provisions. The fact that other countries do not have such regulations would also put Norwegian investors in a more difficult situation than investors who are protected by other countries' investment agreements. It was further argued that membership in global compacts is not a guarantee that the business actually comply with the principles. Okay, I will just give a very brief uh, general comment at the end. I guess my time is running out. Uh, in the public review initiated by South Africa in 2009, it is stated that South African authorities were lacking understanding regarding the real nature and consequences of BITs at the time when most of the country's agreements were concluded. I think that is true for a lot of countries, in, both in the developing and the developed world. The idea was to ensure a minimum level of treatment, or whether you call it spreading the ideology, or at least it was to create some sort of minimum level. Uh, Another element is that for most capital exporting countries, the reciprocity of the agreements seemed only theoretical. When the Norwegian BITs were concluded, they weren't even presented to Parliament because they were considered to be treaties of little consequence. Thank you. hesitation as how to continue. Um, I think we may want to continue just the way through. Is it the easiest? All right. It was foreseen differently, but I think that's okay. No problems at all. Um, thanks very much, Alan. I will try and stick uh, religiously to my time slot. Um, I hope that's uh, more the outroar that um, Australia's new policy uh, might, might result in. There's not a lot of outroar right at the moment, but that might be yet to come. Um, Thank you very much to LSE for having me here. Um, as Jan said, my name's Adam Shepherd. I work for the Productivity Commission, um, and I'm part of the team that worked on the project that has led to this change in Australia's policy. Um, our presiding commissioner, Patricia Scott, wanted to come out and join me uh, today, but she wasn't able to. So I'm hoping uh, in the next 15 minutes I can give a very concise overview of the role and the work of the Productivity Commission. Um, why we were looking at ISDS and uh, how we came to our policy position. Um, so the Productivity Commission is the Australian government's principal review body on microeconomic reform uh, and regulatory policy. 
through public inquiries. Um, our role is to inform government policy and to educate about the benefits for reform. There are three core design principles uh, that go into the Productivity Commission. Um, we're an independent part of the public service. Uh, we are not the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, so we're not tasked with undertaking Australia's foreign uh, trade policy forward. Um, but instead, we um, are arm's length from the day-to-day uh, -day work of the government. Um, our, uh, um, activities are protected by statute, and we have an independent board of commissioners who are appointed by the Governor-General under similar conditions to um, Australia's judicial officers, so with similar um, statutory protection as judges. Um, our role is to produce reports, and we do so in a transparent and public manner. Um, we invite participation from members of the community, both the sectors that might be under investigation or members from the public. All of our submissions are available on our website. We produce draft reports that are available publicly, um, seek further feedback, and then finally release a draft report that uh, makes our recommendations to government. Um, and our underlying objective uh, is while we invite participation from a range of sectors and we hear from a range of interests on lots of different topics, um, the Commission is tasked with making recommendations for net community benefits to Australia. What policy recommendations improve the welfare of Australia as a whole? Uh, why were we looking at the issue of investor-state dispute settlement? Um, in 2009, late 2009, the Australian Government asked us to review its uh, policy around free trade agreements, what it termed bilateral and regional trade agreements, um, and we were asked to study the impact of FTAs essentially on Australia's economic performance. Um, obviously ISDS is a relevant feature here because it's often a component of FTAs. Um, and as most people here probably know, there's an extensive economic literature um, around investor-state dispute settlement issues, and the Commission drew heavily on that literature, as well as the feedback we received from uh, a range of participants. Um, Australia's approach uh, so far is, I think, probably somewhat different from the other participants here uh, at, at the table. Um, Australia currently has six free trade agreements, um, including a long-standing agreement with uh, New Zealand, but up until around the 2000 had largely eschewed FTAs um, participating in the multilateral processes through the GATT uh, and the WTO, and then in around 2000 um, started to pursue some of these uh, FTAs. There's around eight more currently being negotiated, and it's also a party to around 20 bits, uh, what we call in Australia investment protection and promotion agreements. Uh, most of these agreements, both the FTAs and the bits, um, offer national treatment, fair and equitable treatment, uh, and protection from expropriation. Almost all of the agreements um, allow investor-state dispute arbitration. The notable exception in Australia is our agreement with the United States. As I say, part of our process is to invite uh, feedback and participation. Um, we uh, had feedback and input from NGOs, from academics, um, and from participants uh, in the legal community. Um, as you might appreciate, there's a divergence of views as to the policy that Australia should adopt towards ISDS going forwards. Um, in particular, participants pointed out the risks to Australia from arbitration, um, as well as the fact that the Australian Constitution has some protection already available um, for expropriation issues. Um, while other participants pointed to the benefits of 
um, ISDS provisions and also ways that some of the criticisms that we've heard could be overcome. Importantly, no Australian business uh, came forward during the study and submitted that they either used or strongly favoured um, the ISDS provisions within Australia's agreements. So I guess perhaps what um, differs here today uh, in my position is um, the Commission's analytical framework for considering uh, policy issues in a whole range of areas, including uh, ISDS. Um, as we've heard already, and we'll perhaps hear from um, the remainder of the table, much of the debate around ISDS comes from a legal perspective, one of investor rights. For the Commission, the key economic question is whether or not there is a significant market failure of the kind that ISDS might be suited to addressing. Um, from the Commission's point of view, there's already a range of market incentives for investors to balance both the costs and benefits of investment, including sovereign risk issues. And from an economic perspective, what we would need to find is some failure in this assessment process to justify government intervention. So there are some threshold questions for the Commission. Is there an underlying market failure relating to sovereign risk? If there is, what are the policy options available, both to government but also to business, to address this risk? And if implemented, which option would afford Australia the maximum net community benefits? That's the framework we've undertaken this work in. On the first issue of whether or not there's uh, a, a market failure, significant market failure in the area of sovereign risk, you're probably familiar there's an existing economic literature on what characteristics a market failure would have um, that we would be seeking to identify. Um, in the context of sovereign risk and ISDS in particular, um, information asymmetries generally manifest or potentially manifest in uh, two different ways. Um, one being expropriation of investments by government um, after those investments have occurred. The second being whether or not foreign investors face some kind of systemic regulatory bias uh, against them in their activities. On the first issue of, uh, of expropriation, uh, the Commission considered, again, the economic literature on the issue and concluded that for any government seeking to remain a desirable destination for foreign investment, reputation effects will likely to mitigate many of the risks around expropriation. On the issue of, um, on the issue of systemic bias, um, there's a, again a wealth of literature as well as submissions that the Commission received um, and we concluded that there was not evidence that foreign businesses faced this systemic bias. And in fact, one of the submissions uh, that we received drew out academic work from the 2005 World Business Environment Survey, um, a survey of around 10,000 businesses conducting uh, investment and business across borders from around 80 countries. Uh, this is a self-reported survey, and one of the key features of this is uh, businesses reporting on their experience of conducting business. And in fact, that study suggests that businesses that do invest across borders often face regulatory favour as opposed to investment, um, again, as governments seek to attract foreign capital. Further evidence before the Commission um, suggests that investor state arbitration doesn't really have any impact on FDI flows anyway. The econ econometric literature uh, doesn't suggest that it has an impact um, on the nature or makeup of FDI flows. 
And we suggest that this might uh, at least be partly explained by um, alternatives such as political risk insurance, which is offered by the Australian government through its Export Finance Investment Corporation, uh, through the World Bank, the Multilateral Investment Guarantee Agency, uh, and also a private market for political risk insurance to insure against things like expropriation and indirect expropriation. Uh, large multinational investors are also able to make direct agreements with host governments. Australia has seen examples of this in its mining sector, both as a source of investment. Uh, so the West Australian government has an agreement with foreign investors surrounding a gas project that includes in the legislation, in the contract with the host, uh, with the uh, inward investor, um, arbitration clauses. And Australian mining investors overseas have similar arrangements with host governments. And as I said, the Australian Constitution provides some existing protection to all investors, domestic uh, and foreign alike. So as I say, the Commission concluded that not only was there no impact, uh, no evidence of a, uh, a significant market failure around sovereign risk, uh, but also that it was not likely that ISDS was having much impact anyway. But despite um, the Commission's conclusion on this, nevertheless we examined the arguments around arbitration um, and investor-state dispute settlement clauses. Um, as I say, some of the participants today have already talked about some of the risks that governments face when they agree to such clauses. Um, in particular, uh, regulatory chill does appear to be a real risk uh, for some overseas governments. Um, it's obviously difficult to detect when regulatory chill occurs, particularly if policy proposals never see the light of day um, because of an inbuilt conservatism within government once they sign up to uh, BITs or FTAs. And some of the overseas cases highlight both the types of cases that can arise under um, ISDS provisions as well as the kind of outcomes that can be seen. Moreover, if ISDS clauses are effective, um, we create a risk of distorting um, the sources of capital that flow into a country and run the risk of uh, inefficiently biasing one source of capital over another. Um, as you say, both participants already have talked about um, concerns over the years around arbitration rules, and some of the participants pointed out to the Commission concerns around issues um, such as jurisdiction, uh, how compensation is awarded, and also um, the potential for inbuilt biases in the way arbitration is run and funded. Now, the Commission also heard from other participants that some of these risks can be mitigated. Examples have been provided here today. Um, you know, proced improving procedural rules that are written into agreements. Um, that's a process that Australia adopted in its free trade agreement with Chile, uh, which has a great more procedural detail within the agreement. Uh, but we're concerned, I guess, that um, clauses in some agreements can propagate to other agreements through the use of MFN provisions. So some of those risks remain. Uh, so ultimately, the Commission's assessment was that the risks to Australia uh, from ISDS provisions as a whole outweighed any benefits, um, including to Australian investors investing overseas. And we recommended to the Australian government that it, that it uh, seek to avoid ISDS provisions uh, in its trade agreements going forward. Um, in April this year, the Australian government responded to the Commission's recommendation and noted its support for the principles of national treatment uh, but specifically, and I suspect this is the cause of the uproar, um, that it did not support provision that granted 
uh, provisions that granted either substantive or procedural rights to foreign investors that were not enjoyed by domestic investors, and particularly provisions that constrain its ability to regulate in the future. In essence, businesses must evaluate uh, the risks of undertaking investments as they do domestically when they undertake investments overseas um, and avail themselves of existing policy instruments uh, to manage their risks. So I hope I've kept within the time frame. Uh, thanks very much. I think I will do it from here um, because I have a couple of slides um, that I would like to project. Um, I will start uh, thanking uh, Jan for this invitation and the LSE uh, for having me here. Um, it's an honor. Um, as uh, Jan mentioned, I worked for the government of the Republic of Ecuador uh, at the Attorney General's office. I am um, technically today unemployed, um, so I can basically speak freely about the experience of Ecuador on investment um, and investment dispute settlement experience. Um, so I don't have to make any disclaimer. Uh, and that's a, a good thing, I guess. Um, The issues that I would like to address uh, today with you um, are in relation to Ecuador's evolution uh, on foreign investment in these uh, maybe last 10 years, and um, particular points of interest that come out of such evolution um, that some could say that more than evolution, it's a, involution uh, anyway. Um, a liberal approach to uh, investment uh, in the 90s um, was reflected in the policies on investment in Ecuador. Um, the Washington Consensus uh, was popular at that time um, with policies on the reduction of the size of the state's uh, apparatus and its intervention in the economy. This was supposed to be left to the invisible hand of the free market. Governments with a very friendly approach uh, to foreign direct investment uh, were in power at that time, uh, ready to make compromises on its sovereign powers in exchange of the promise of attracting more foreign direct investment from capital exporting countries. The perception at that time was that this liberal approach to attract foreign direct investment um, will bring fresh capital through the transfer and sale of assets before in the hands of uh, the public sector to private hands with the purpose of providing better services to the population as a whole. In the new millennium, a new administration came to power in Ecuador, the so-called citizen revolution with progressive 
ideas. With a clearer reversal of prior liberal government's policies of the 90s, the new administration called the population to vote on the drafting on a new constitutional framework, giving these powers to a constitutional assembly. Some particular uh, points of interest uh, I would like to mention that came out of this uh, new framework in the internal political equilibrium in Ecuador. Um, at the beginning of the uh, 2000, uh, there were some investment treaty cases, the first ones against the Republic of Ecuador. Um, the Encana case and the Oxy one case, as we call it, um, in relation to tax measures uh, that were passed in uh, the legislation, internal regulations of Ecuador. Um, these two international arbitration treaty cases were brought against the Republic, um, and the outcomes of those two cases um, the final awards are very different between the two of those awards. The Oxy one case, uh, I will refer to the Oxy two case later, um, the Oxy one tribunal uh, found Ecuador liable of breach of its obligations under the US Ecuador BIT. Of particular interest, the tribunal concluded that Ecuador violated the legitimate expectations of the company reading this out of from the fair and equitable treatment standard found in that treaty. Based on a different treaty, the Canadian-Ecuador uh, uh, BIT, the Encana Tribunal found that the company's claim concerned a tax regulation which was outside the scope of the tribunal's jurisdiction. It found that no expropriation had occurred based on Ecuador's good faith conduct when it changed the interpretation of its internal tax measures. Um, as you can imagine, at that time, there was a lot of uh, internal discussion, uh, public discussion, on uh, the reasons for these two tribunals to reach such different conclusions. Um, the Oxy One uh, Tribunal um, found liable Ecuador, and uh, Ecuador paid uh, approximately $75 million out of that award. Uh, it comes in comparison to the U.S. economy as an award approximately of $30 billion to the U.S. economy. Um, another particular point of interest in this evolution was um, the escalation of the oil prices in the international market. In 2005, Ecuador's oil price in the international market reached levels over $120 per barrel. The production sharing contracts negotiated during the 90s had as a best based price $15 to $20 per barrel. This unforeseen scenario brought great revenues for the foreign oil companies and small profit to the state. Renegotiation of oil contracts 
under the drive of the government fail. The equilibrium was brought back through legislation, the so-called Law 42 of April 2006, and later on uh, an executive uh, regulation um, on 2007. Uh, the first one, uh, the April 2006 law, um, basically said that uh, out of the um, benefits of uh, this unforeseen scenario in the oil market prices, it was going to be a share of 50% for the companies and 50% for the state. Uh, later on, um, the executive decree uh, made that um, uh, distribution to 99% for the state and 1% for the companies, the 99 executive regulation. Um, later, a notification by Ecuador was made under Article 25.4 of the Exit Convention. And the Exit Convention uh, on Article 25.4 provides the following. Any contracting state may at the time of ratification, acceptance, or approval of this convention, or at any time thereafter, notify the center of the class of, or classes of disputes which he will or will not consider submitting to the jurisdiction of the center. The Secretary General shall forthwith transmit such notification to all contracting states. Such notification shall not constitute the consent required by paragraph one. On this December 4, 2007, Ecuador notified the center um, of certain disputes it will no longer consent to submit to its jurisdiction pursuant to Article 25.4. The text of such notification reads as follows. The Republic of Ecuador will not consent to submit to the jurisdiction of ICSID the disputes that arise in matters concerning the treatment of investment in economic activities related to the exploitation of natural resources, such as oil, gas, mineral, or others. Any instrument containing the Republics of Ecuador's previously expressed will to submit that class of disputes to the jurisdiction of the center, which has not been perfected by the express an explicit consent of the other party given prior to the date of submission of the present notification is hereby withdrawn by the Republic of Ecuador with immediate effect as of this date. The rationale of the Republic of Ecuador at that time was that with this notification, future disputes on these strategic sectors uh, will not fall within the jurisdiction of the center. Uh, a recent uh, jurisdictional award in the Murphy case of December 15, 2010, uh, does not agree with the Republic's interpretation on this issue. Um, then, denunciation of bilateral investment treaties. Um, under the administration of President uh, Correa, on January 2008, the BITs with El Salvador, Cuba, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, the Dominican Republic, Paraguay, Uruguay, and Romania are terminated in compliance with the provisions on denunciation of those same treaties. The basis invoked for such measures was a study produced by the Central Bank of the Republic under the instances of an interinstitutional committee and with the advice of the Attorney General's office. The economic findings were that those BITs had no role to play in seeking to attract foreign direct investment from the treaty partners. If any of you 
has any interest on uh, this of the impact of BIT to attract foreign direct investment, I can point you to a very interesting uh, finding uh, on a paper written by my good friend Lau, uh, who is here with us uh, tonight. Um, under a new constitutional uh, framework uh, that came later into force, the executive branch had no authority to denunciate other BITs still into force at that time, unless it had first approval by the Constitutional Court and finally the National <coughs> Assembly. Um, the Constitutional Court, on its findings about the constitutionality of uh, 12 of the BITs um, that the executive branch asked for authorization, concluded that the provisions on ISDS and state-to-state -state dispute settlement were unconstitutional and therefore the denunciations authorization requested by the executive branch was granted. The National Assembly as of today has given its green light to the executive branch to denounce uh, the um, BITs with Germany, United Kingdom, Sweden, Finland and France. As of today, the only official denunciation that I'm aware of is the one with Finland uh, of particular interest and worth mentioning tonight uh, was the negative outcome that came out of the National Assembly when the Ecuador-China bid was voted. Uh, the only BIT that the executive branch did not request authorization for denunciation is the one in force with the Kingdom of Spain. Uh, I want to mention my gratitude uh, to Diana Moya, a lawyer at the Attorney General's Office, for the information she provided uh, for this presentation on this issue. Um, a constitutional new framework came into effect uh, in October 2008. Um, this new constitution came into force uh, with a new article, uh, Article 422. Uh, the has, um, I think, one of the leading uh, records on the number of articles in a constitution. Um, in its relevant part, uh, reads as follows. Uh, no international treaty or instrument shall be concluded in which the um, Republic of Ecuador cedes sovereign jurisdiction to international arbitral tribunals in contractual or commercial controversies between the state and natural persons or private legal entities. And now comes an exception to this rule. International treaties and instruments that establish the solution to controversies between states and citizens in Latin America by regional arbitral tribunals or by judicial bodies designated by the signatory countries are exempted. The current interpretation of this provision is that it precludes the executive branch to enter into international treaties that contain international arbitration provisions as a forum for investment dispute settlement. It does not preclude the state or any of its instrumentalities to execute contracts that include international arbitration as a forum to dispute settlement. Then, the denunciation of the ICSID Convention based on Article 71 of the ICSID Convention on July 2009. In its relevant, relevant part, the text of the letter of denunciation from Ecuador directed to the depository of the ICSID Convention the president of the World Bank, uh, Ecuador was the second country denouncing the exit convention after Bolivia, reads as follows. And this is the part that is different 
on the way Bolivia uh, denounced the exit convention. Um, once this notification is received by the depos depository of the convention, the Republic of Ecuador withdraws and leaves without effect any offer of consent or consent granted through any instrument that was not perfected before this date through the express and written acceptance of the investor. The current interpretation by Ecuador's government is that the, the, such text prevents any investor to bring a future investment claim against the Republic unless the consent was perfected by the investor prior to the date the letter of denunciation was filed by the Republic. New provisions on investment contracts were negotiated in particular sectors uh, as in the oil sector. After uh, protract, uh, protract, uh, protracted negotiations that took years and concluded last November, um, a new provision on ISDS was introduced. This provision allowed the parties for recourse to international arbitration with the seat of the arbitration in Santiago de Chile under UNCITRAL rules enforced in 1976 and the administration of the PCA Secretariat. In the first Occidental arbitration case, known as the Oxy One case, the tribunal did not agree with Ecuador on its interpretation of the fork in the road provision of the Ecuador US BIT. In the second Occidental arbitration, known as the Oxy Two case, the government of Ecuador argued before the Oxy Two tribunal that the caducidad proceeding was not arbitrable under Ecuadorian law and the production sharing contracts. The tribunal did not agree with Ecuador. On its decision, the tribunal found as following. The tribunal thus finds that Clause 21.4 does not consist of a carve-out of caducidad disputes from exit jurisdiction. Then it went on and said the tribunal observes that certain jurisdictional carve-outs are found elsewhere in the participation contract. Based on these precedents, a new provision was negotiated and accepted by foreign investors in the new contracts. The relevant part of the text reads uh, as follows. These um, contracts were, uh, were signed uh, in the last uh, November of 2010. The arbitration provided for, for in this clause shall be considered as a choice of forum for the resolution of disagreements arising from this contract and shall also be the forum for the resolution of disagreements arising from any treaty on the promotion and protection of investment which could be invoked by the contractor. Also, there is a provision on exclusion of certain matters from the scope of arbitration and exclusive jurisdiction to national courts and tribunals, as follows. All disagreements arising from a declaration of caducity or in connection with the effects thereof cannot be resolved by arbitration and must be resolved by the competent courts of Ecuador. Disagreements with respect to tax administration actions shall be resolved by the competent courts of Ecuador. Um, I was planning to uh, explain about the uh, new UNASUR um, negotiations that are taking place in relation to the creation of a dispute uh, mechanism for uh, investor state matters, but I think my time is over, so I thank you very much. Thanks.
just go right ahead. Oh, yes, definitely. If someone else wants to leave in the meanwhile. By the way, there, there's some water outside. I know this is a very long session. Um, the only thing we could do in order to squeeze time accordingly is to give you some water at the entrance. Of course, if you're now really thirsty, do help yourself. But otherwise, we would really love to hear our last presentation. Thank you. I'm glad that most of you decided to stay a bit Ah, thank you. I told uh, Lauge that uh, I would just like to make some general remarks, off-the-cuff remarks, for about 15 minutes. But then I had to rethink. I mean, instead of me rambling on incoherently, I decided to present a prepared uh, presentation, so at least now I can ramble on coherently, and you'll be able to follow me. Um, I want to share with, uh, with you my country, South Africa's experience, including my personal experience with the negotiations of BITs and our past and current approaches to such negotiations. It will become clear to you from my speech about my country's gradual development from a country that merely accepted without question the claim made by developed countries that it is a necessity for developing countries to enter into BITs in order to attract investment to a country that questions the purpose and content of BITs and in particular whether there is a real need for South Africa to enter into such international agreements that limits its sovereignty. South Africa first entered into a BIT with the UK in 1994 Although this BIT was signed by the new South African government in 1994, it was presented to the outgoing government in 1992-93. It seems that the UK government was prompted by the fear that the new black government of South Africa would nationalize or expropriate the property of its investors that caused them to present their draft model bid to the outgoing government of South Africa. South African government officials simply accepted the draft model bit without any negotiations when it was presented to them in 92-93. In fact, this is the reason why I say South Africa entered into BITs and not used the word negotiate. Subsequently, after the new president Mandela signed the BIT in 1994, the officials appeared before parliamentary committee and informed the committee that South Africa does not have anything to worry about as the BIT with the UK does not contain any substantive obligations that would be placed on South Africa. They further compounded their error by adopting the UK draft model BIT as South Africa's model BIT and used it as a basis to conclude further BITs with other developed countries that had the same political concerns as the UK government. South Africa has, therefore, never done a risk-benefit analysis before adopting this model BIT. It should have been made clear to those government officials that South Africa, being a developing country, is not in the same position as the UK 
and would accordingly have to consider different interests before taking such a step. When I took over as South Africa's uh, BIT negotiator at the beginning of 2001, I was quite horrified to read the content of a BIT. The BIT places all the obligations on the host state and gives all the rights to the investors. Obviously, if this had to be a personal contract, no one will sign such a contract in their personal lives. And then the question will have to be asked, why would they enter into such an agreement on behalf of their countries? On my advice, South Africa immediately ceased all negotiations with developed countries. However, at the same time, we recognize what a powerful weapon BITs would be for South African investors. The dilemma facing South Africa is, is that we are both a capital importing and exporting country, as alluded to earlier on by one of the presenters. In fact, we are the biggest foreign investor at the time on the continent of Africa. As a result, we then adopted a dual approach whereby we continued concluding BITs with other developing countries. However, we sought to soften the harsh consequences of our model BIT by bringing certain amendments to it. For example, we changed the definition of what constitutes a foreign investment in terms of the treaty, which normally referred to any kind of asset, could be anything, that has some kind of economic value to a long-term foreign direct investment which must hold economic value for the host country. We also excluded short-term portfolio investments from the definition. And further, we changed the meaning of expropriation to exclude regulatory expropriation and to bring it in line with its customary international law meaning. I should also add that our decision to continue negotiating BITs with other developing countries, mostly other African countries, was influenced by the fact that these countries would request us to negotiate these agreements with them because they honestly believed that if they concluded BITs, they will attract foreign investment. Empirical evidence to this effect is inconclusive and therefore it is false for, developing, for developed countries to claim that it is in the interest of developing countries to enter into BITs because, as a result, they will attract foreign investment. Clearly, the determinants of foreign direct investment are numerous and includes, amongst others, market size, infrastructure, the availability of skilled labor, availability of natural resources, tax policy, labor laws, legal certainty, etc. Developed countries seek only to address one determinant of FDI, which is legal certainty. The BIT is therefore merely seen to be seen by them as a means of protection of their foreign investments. A study was undertaken by a private consulting firm in South Africa, and it was found by them that foreign investors only ranked legal certainty as the eighth determinant in their decision on whether to invest in South Africa or not. The most important determinant of FDI for them is that of market size. 
It should also be noted that in 2007, South Africa's two biggest foreign investors were Canada and the United States. South Africa did not enter into BITs with these two countries. Of course, I must add that the ranking of what is the most important determinant for FDI depends on the circumstances of the specific country. It is therefore important for developing countries to know when they devise an investment promotion policy, what the ranking of these determinants are in their respective countries. I also want to recount my experience of negotiating a BIT with a particular developing country, which highlights the problem faced by most developing countries. I presented South Africa's amended model BIT to this country negotiators, to this country's negotiators, but instead of them using it as a basis for negotiations, they presented South Africa with a model BIT of their own that was based on the old US model BIT, which included pre-establishment rights. The South African BIT is limited to post-establishment rights only. The other developing country's model BIT, accordingly, was more restrictive than the pre-amended South African BIT. After the South African negotiations team explained to them the content and consequences of the model BIT, and also that of the amendments brought to the South African BIT, they were quite shocked when they realized what they wanted to get themselves into. As stated, this highlights a major problem in most developing countries, that negotiations, negotiators are not properly informed or capacitated to deal with such uh, specialized agreements. In many instances, I've come across negotiators who negotiate these agreements without the presence of a lawyer. This has also been the case of South Africa before 2001. However, we realized early on that the dualistic approach, which I referred earlier to, would not be sustainable and that it was merely a stopgap or interim measure. We were aware that in adopting this approach, we had to contend with the MFN principle apart from the political considerations relating to diplomatic relations. A further concern that we have was the procedural mechanism surrounding BIT arbitrations and international arbitrations itself. In about 2005, I received a request from our Department of Justice and Constitutional Affairs to provide them with comments and a recommendation whether South Africa should accede to ICSID. It appeared from the document that I received that what was known as the South African Law Reform Commission recommended to the South African government in 1996 that it would be in South Africa's interest to accede to the ICSID convention. I consequently looked at the history of the commission study to inform me of how they arrived at that conclusion. What I found was that only two academics submitted comments supporting South Africa acceding to the convention and that there was no engagement with any government department. The comments from the academics included statements made by ICSID that the convention was specifically beneficial for developing countries and that it would attract foreign investment. We clearly know this not to be the case. 
To further capacitate ourselves to make an informed recommendation, we looked at the history of how the convention, the ICSID convention was drafted and compared its content with that of other treaties such as the Ancestral Arbitral Rules and the New York Convention for the Enforcement of Arbitral Awards. I found it surprising that a convention that World Bank officials claimed was beneficial to developing countries, they did their utmost to reduce the rights and defenses that developing countries had in terms of these two treaties. They specifically included strong enforcement provisions in the ICSID Convention and made it a self-contained system for arbitration. This was specifically done to limit the risk of awards being annulled by domestic courts because this was a major problem for developed countries as awards were regularly being annulled under ad hoc arbitrations. Therefore, an application for annulment of an ICSID award can only be brought to an internal ICSID review committee and not to an outside court, a domestic court. The World Bank also excluded public policy defenses, which are crucial for developing countries, more so today, as South Africa has found out, as its public policies have been under attack in international arbitration. It was as a result of the challenges faced by South Africa in particular that we started to conceptualize a comprehensive and holistic approach to deal with the issue of BITs. Accordingly, in 2007, we started a process to develop a policy framework for BITs. The policy looked at both the macro and micro environment surrounding BITs. In looking at the macro environment, questions were raised such as what would be the economic rationale for South Africa to enter into a BIT with a certain country. The micro-environment study looked at what are the legal aspects currently covered in BITs and what is it that South Africa, from its own perspective, would like to see covered in a BIT if it is found that negotiating a BIT would be in South Africa's interests. As far as we are concerned, nothing is sacred and we are starting from a blank slate. In this regard, the most important questions that need to be answered are, what purpose do BITs serve? And does South Africa really need BITs? But as stated before, South Africa needs to take into consideration that it is not only a capital, a capital importing developing country, but that it is also a capital exporting country. The policy framework process included the drafting of an initial pub, a policy document through research work and interviewing the bilateral units in the International Trade Division who directly worked with BITs, including other divisions in the Department of Trade and Industry and other government departments. After the initial document was circulated internally in government for comment, an internal government workshop was held. The internal workshop turned out to be an important educational exercise. As a result, there was a better understanding of what BITs are about, but we still received a limited amount of comments of value. Subsequently, we produced a second draft of the policy paper that was published on the internet, 
and in newspapers for public comment. Again, a limited amount of public comments were received. Following this, a public workshop was held that was attended by a wide range of stakeholders that included academics, government, NGOs, business people, lawyers, labor unions, and civil society. An important comment was made by a judge in the workshop who said that allowing a foreign investor to bypass the domestic courts to go to international arbitration will result in the impoverishment of the domestic, of the judiciary, as far as adjudicating disputes involving foreign investment. An extended period was granted for further comments and a number of useful comments were received. A third draft of the policy paper was adopted by the South African Cabinet. And there I will just briefly say um, that basically what was decided, as you know, unlike what is presented to, 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 to the world out there, that uh, with this myriad of BITs, you know, countries are developing customs and countries are developing international law, that is not correct. BITs are short-term agreements. It is normally concluded for 10 to 15 years. So on the part of the negotiators, there are no intention that these rules are supposed to continue after 10, 15 years because there are provisions in the BITs that allow one of the parties to terminate these uh, BITs if you choose not to continue with those rules. So these are not permanent agreements. These are short-term agreements. And what we have now recommended, that South Africa will look at these BITs, and we've established now before it were, uh, a decision whether to negotiate a BIT or not was taken by a South African government official at the request of a foreign country or at the request of an ambassador, because ambassadors like signing agreements. It sort of goes into their performance agreements. Look what we've done during our tenure. We've achieved something. And ministers, when they travel, they need something to sign to justify them traveling. So we need to take that away from them. So what we've decided, we're going to establish an interministerial committee, and the committee will then take a proper decision after proper consideration with the number one to sign new BITs with any countries that request or an ambassador that requests. And then, importantly, to look at past BITs, because most of the BITs that we signed, we signed in the 90s, and most of them are now coming to the end of their lifespan, 10, 15 years, and we have to take a decision whether we will simply terminate these BITs or whether we will offer to renegotiate this BIT based on a new model, model BIT which will be drafted, taking into consideration South Africa's peculiar circumstances. So that, those are the type of recommendations we made to Cabinet and which was accepted. But I just want to go on further a bit about other forums we've engaged in. South Africa also engage, engages in other forums such as the OECD and the Heiligendam Aquila process. That is the G8 countries plus G, G5, G5 referring to the bigger developing countries such as China, Brazil, India, etc., and including South Africa. And UNCTAD, when we engage in discussions on the regulation of foreign investment, we, South Africa, start from the point of view that currently it cannot be said that an international investment law exists. For such a law to develop, 
there needs to be, amongst others, universal acceptance of the principles contained in BITs and other international agreements. There is no such universal acceptance, despite the numerous BITs that have been signed. International arbitrations have resulted in a confusing array of many different interpretations of the same principles and on the same points in issue. Our view is that we currently have, what we currently have is a system of, in, of investment arbitration based on treaty rules, not international law. Accordingly, accordingly we believe just as other treaties are subject to principles of customary international law and international law as a whole, for example, the application of the Vienna Convention on the interpretation of treaties, BITs are equally subject to international law. BITs, therefore, cannot be interpreted in isolation from other treaties to which the two countries are parties. It is a principle of public international law that there are some obligations, namely Jews cogens, and I'm not a good uh, Italian uh, uh, pronunciate, I mean uh, Latin pronunciator, namely Jews cogens, that states cannot contract out of, for example, Jews cogens contained in human rights treaties. In one forum, we also discuss a topic titled non-jurisdictional issues in investment arbitration. This debate starts from the premise that investment arbitrators' jurisdiction is limited to what is contained in the BIT and has to interpret the BITs in isolation. The question that is posed in the debate is whether there are any other issues which arbitrators may look at in arriving at an award. It is South Africa's view that countries cannot be treated as commercial entities that are involved in a contractual dispute. In this instance, the contract being the BIT. A state's responsibility, responsibilities are not limited to the foreign investor only, and there are many other obligations placed on states in relation to all its citizens. And in a number of instances, the obligations resting on a state in relation to the investor and its obligations in relation to all its citizens can be in conflict with one another. We also participate in debates where we look at the different understanding existing between developed and developing countries concerning the purpose of BITs. From a developed country perspective, BITs are seen as an instrument of protection, whereas developing countries look at it from a sustainable development perspective and are quite concerned about the limitations placed on them by BITs regarding flexibility and policy space they would normally have as a sovereign state without BITs. In conclusion, I would want to add that it is in the interest of developing countries to evaluate the risk benefits of concluding BITs, taking into consideration their particular and unique circumstances. This should be done as soon as possible, and developing countries should not wait till they face the daunting challenge of an international arbitration. I thank you.
first of all, thank you very much to our presentators. I thought this was uh, highly stimulating. Uh, I have a very bad news for Randall, though. Um, we sign these kind of contracts every day. As consumers, we do sign up or we click. I have read those terms, and I don't know what, on Amazon.com, and then go, yes, I want to order. Um, Fortunately for us, I'm coming from the contract law side, is that we have something like consumer protection laws, which apparently seem to be uh, needed in parts of the world inter relating to investment treaties. Um, we have, uh, Jans and I have thought that we will slightly modify our approach. We will, I think, want to have the public engaged as soon as possible, and therefore thought it would be uh, best that Janssen just uh, uh, takes the, the, the first word, and I would suggest that then maybe Lauger takes the second one. And any of you is, of course, also participant in the sense that he can ask questions, but uh, then we would open the floor to everyone so that we can more or less stick to our timetable, which was pre foreseen for 8.30 to end. We have some leeway. Uh, those who have to leave earlier can, of course, do so. So, um, Janssen. I, I, want, I want to go up there. First of all, thanks to all of our speakers for very, very interesting presentations. Um, one question I, I have, I guess, following up on, on all of these presentations, um, the reviews that have been undertaken, the changes that have been made based upon uh, the various drivers of policy that you've described, whether litigation or um, internal reviews of economic impact, um, they're all perspective-looking. Uh, and they all look forward largely to future bits or future trade agreements or, or not having future trade agreements. What about existing agreements that you have? To the extent that um, the, st your, the states that you come from have bits on the books which don't reflect your most recent model or your most recent policy position, to what extent are governments going back to treaty partners and saying, well, we'd like to renegotiate. I mean, you, you described, Randall, I think, the idea of waiting for some of them to expire and then perhaps taking that opportunity to renegotiate. What about, are there any treaties on the horizon that you see, perhaps we shouldn't wait for them to expire, perhaps we should be proactive and go to our treaty partners now? Well, uh, maybe I'll start on that. Um, well, first of all, from South African government point of view, we do not want to show uh, the other party that we reneging on, on, on the agreement. Um, if the agreement is valid for 10 years, we'll wait for the agreement to expire, and then in that period we will offer to renegotiate. If they're not keen to, to renegotiate, then we will merely uh, terminate the agreement. And then it will be done in terms of a provision already in that agreement. So they cannot say that we're reneging on the agreement. Yes, uh, we have had the various approaches to that in our way. Uh, at one time, the policy was that we terminated the agreements that were, we, we were able to terminate. Uh, because most of them are, uh, they, they do not expire after 10 to 15 years, but you can terminate them. And then they will go on for 10 to 15 years if you don't do anything. Uh, so for one period, we, uh, it was decided that we should terminate them, and we did with two agreements, with Indonesia and Malaysia. Uh, 
happy to offer our perspective. Um, the issue of existing agreements, we are largely silent on in terms of our report, as I say. Um, taking apart sort of the economics of the costs and benefits is informed by the agreements that we have in place and also the agreements other countries have in place um, and their experiences. As I say, it's not something we address directly in the report. Um, obviously, the Australian Government Department that's responsible for trade policy is the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Um, now, they responded to the recommendations in the report um, specifically around going forward, but the, the report has a life beyond that. And who knows whether that's under active consideration? I, I have no idea. On the, on the European perspective here, because of course, as you know, the draft regulation uh, forwarded by the Commission um, provided for uh, a review of the existing BITs of the member states with the uh, third countries for the transitional period until they are replaced by European BITs. And in that respect, um, the, uh, the Commission sought to have the possibility to check those BITs against European law because of the supremacy of European law inside the European Union. Um, regarding the overlap with existing trade agreements with third countries so as to avoid having kind of parallel, parallel uh, ways of uh, regulating certain aspects. And thirdly, which is the most controversial issue, um, to contact their compatibility with um, EU policy. And um, as you may know from the debates in the parliament, that was really the uh, spark which brought about a huge discussion um, because clearly the member states don't want that they do not want their BITs to be reviewed against EU <coughs> policy. And uh, it may be interesting uh, also to mention that the European BITs, in average, uh, are only four pages long as compared to uh, the American ones. And uh, that brings me back to what Randall also said. I mean, they are so short and so broadly uh, framed that eventually the question is, how, how, how can we really keep the same level of protection which we're having right now in the future without, uh, sorry, and at the same time incorporate best global practices. Because as soon as we do that, as soon as we look into NAFTA experience, as soon as we look into all the other countries' experiences, we will have to include some qualifications. And any qualification of these four pages will result in a, some kind of a reduction of invested protection. And therefore, there is still lots of thinking to be done in Europe as well. What do we really want? And therefore, do we keep those BITs now the way they are? Probably yes. But then really, I think that is the point where the foreign experience must come in as saying, well, the new ones, we should really think about what, how to reframe them, how to redraft them. And I pass on to Lauge. Mickey Mouse logic, I think it was said at one case. 
representative of an Australian backward thinking and those types of um, derogatory statements. Um, so it was interesting to see that the might not actually be the case. It was a recent um, presentation. Uh, my question is, did you seem to think that you're hearing, as an observation, it might appear to me that in, in the Australian case, this was mostly driven, I understand, by economists. And also many of the inputs and much of the logic was by economists, whereas in many other countries, investment treaty negotiations have been dread, uh, led by lawyers. Was there some sort of split in the way that you regarded these types of questions among, between professions? That's an excellent question, um, and I would hope to um, uh, do justice to that in a reasonably comprehensive manner. So, um, you know, let me sort of unpack that, I guess. Um, you know, we've kept abreast of some of the uproar and aware of, you know, some of the comments that have been made by you know, arbitrators and the, and the legal professionals. So um, let me start by saying, um, in terms of a split, as I say, we are the Australian government's principal review body for microeconomic reform. We are not negotiators, we are not trade negotiators and have never been trade negotiators, but we um, are a broad organisation with a long history in examining trade policy in Australia. So our genesis comes out of an organisation that was formed in the 20s in Australia, the Tariff Board, and we've pursued tariff reform and other microeconomic reform since then through our various genesis. Our chairman um, was, a was, was uh, an employee at the GATT and the WTO. Um, so we have a long history of reviewing trade policy and trade reform, again, from the underlying e objective of improving um, Australia's economic performance and enhancing community welfare. So throughout the study, we obviously were exposed to the debate that comes from the legal profession that starts with a presumption of investor rights, and we reject that notion. Um, you know, the goal of government policy from our perspective is to reduce or remove market distortions to allow investment to flow to its most productive uses based on underlying market principles. Um, you know, we reject the notion that uh, government policy should be about um, attracting or pushing FDI and particularly from any country in particular, but rather where there are legitimate market failures implementing policy um, that would correct such market failures to, as I say, allow underlying um, uh, market fundamentals to operate. And so that's where the initial question comes from. Is there a market failure to justify intervention in this way? Um, to the extent that there is a split, obviously, as I say, we don't have the perspective of the legal profession, although we have a number of lawyers that work within the Commission and are conversant in the rights-based you know, argument that goes on, but it is not consistent necessarily with improving the welfare of the community as a whole. Does that answer your question? Yeah. I think after having abused of our monopoly, um, unless someone of you has a question to one of your colleagues, which of course you can still ask over dinner, but probably <laughs> as well, um, Let's hear what the public has to say. One, two, three. Let's follow that order. You just say who you are, and you can speak into the microphone, just like that. It's very. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my name is Ben Russell. I work at the Foreign Office. Um, I've a question in particular um, for the USTR representative. I'm sorry, I missed your name. 
Um, but I was interested when you're talking about the uh, NAFTA negotiations and how um, both the US and Canada wanted to have a bit in the NAFTA agreement so that you could be protected in Mexico. And of course, um, you ended up having Canadian firms uh, suing, suing America. Um, in retrospect, do you think that it was a sensible decision? a sensible decision to have an investor state uh, mechanism as well, between Canada and the United States? Exa yeah, exactly. I think the answer is probably best found in the uh, step taken between Australia and the United States a few years later upon reflection. And the answer is an obvious no. It wasn't necessary for the business communities. And there were plenty of avenues to protect uh, investor rights as between two countries uh, with similarities like that and uh, legal systems uh, that are in place in those two two places. So, so I'd say no. Can I, can I ask a follow-up question? So the agreement, uh, so the inclusion of investor state dispute settlement between the US and Canada was specifically around issues with Mexico? Well, I mean, of course, uh, that's not stated policy. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> sure, sure. It was a, a trilateral agreement, but yep. uh, curiously, you know, the predecessor to the North American Free Trade Agreement was the, uh, what did they call it at the time? Well, it was the uh, bilateral agreement, free trade agreement between yep. Canada and the United States. Yep, sure. It had an investment chapter, but no investor state yep. dispute resolution mechanism. So, um, so that's interesting. You sort of say that's a, a trilateral agreement. So Australia has a trade agreement with the ASEAN countries, um, as well as New Zealand. So there's six or eight members in that agreement. Um, Australia also has a long-standing agreement with New Zealand, a closer economic relations agreement that includes a whole range of things. It goes back to the 20s also. Um, so the individual agreement between Australia and New Zealand um, does not have an investment chapter and doesn't have investor state dispute settlement because there's a wide range of legislation to integrate our two markets anyway. Um, participation in the agreement between Australia and New Zealand with ASEAN allowed for investor state dispute settlement between the ASEAN nations and Australia and New Zealand but excluded ISDS between Australia and New Zealand consistent with their existing agreement. So that's one contrast, I guess. It is um, interesting. Uh, sorry, go ahead. It's interesting to see this uh, experience. If you uh, put it on context, on the WTO experience uh, under the dispute settlement understanding, on which um, at the beginning the rules were from the developed world uh, to have uh, measures of retortion uh, in different sectors, uh, for example, on, on, on IP. Um, uh, rules and then Ecuador came back uh, later uh, years later with measures of uh, retortion measures against the EU on IP area and then those rules weren't that nice at that time <laughs> um, may I just add um, if you look at the example you just mentioned between uh, Canada, the US, and, and Mexico, that is precisely the raison d'etre, uh, the, the reason why you, they think you need uh, BITs with international arbitration mechanism built in, is because developed countries do not trust the judiciary of developing countries. That's what it comes down to. If Mexico was not part of NAFTA, I can assure you there would have been no international arbitration but precisely because Mexico, developing country, their judiciary cannot be trusted to resolve a dispute. And that's what's behind the, the BITs. 
Ian Mansfield, uh, UK Department for Business. Um, question to anyone on the panel, but um, I was wondering why you thought it was that the EU15 have had no or very few cases brought against them, despite being having bits with some major developing country investors, such as China, India, and the Gulf states. And also, where do you think that the state of affairs will continue in the future? I'll uh, respond in part to that to say that, well, there have been, I think, only two claims against the EU 15 states at present, maybe, maybe three or something. One against the UK, but it's sort of an oddball claim, so it may not be uh, characterized as, you know, these substantial uh, kinds of claims you've seen brought by uh, Canadian investors against the United States. But one, one of the, you know, quick and ready answers to that is that the system of governance in place in Europe is perhaps uh, set up in such a way that this kind of recourse to investor state dispute settlement is not really necessary. You have an effectively functioning judiciary in many locations. You have other outlets to address these uh, kinds of concerns. But also, you know, they're not, there's only been one Chinese claim against any state. That's the Sayap Shum versus Peru case. And it was actually brought by a Hong Kong Chinese investor, curiously, under, the, I think, the mainland Chinese uh, treaty or vice versa. So there's been no Indian claims other than the one that I gather you're familiar with. And um, there's been one Swedish claim against Germany, which has settled recently. So uh, that's all we've seen, really. And maybe the Canadian claims against the U.S. are driven in large part by the access Canadians have to U.S. litigators. <laughs> We, we may want to mention also in the European context with the nationalization of Fortis uh, in Belgium that a Chinese investor who had a 4% claim in that bank, a stake in that bank, um, did use the BIT massively for negotiating what we don't know what the outcome is. And we're seeing right now in Spain um, the preparation of a claim against Spain because it is revoking certain subsidies for um, electrovoltaic uh, energy, which um, comes to the displeasure of investors, which may also lead up to that, but maybe we're just at the moment where we see possibly the old European countries being confronted with these questions. I shall move up here. Good evening. Uh, my name is uh, Marcos Orellana with the Center for International Environmental Law, CL. Uh, congratulations. Thank you for very interesting presentations. Uh, I wanted to make a comment and ask a question. Uh, so by way of comment, um, the first speaker, sorry, I arrived a bit late, so I couldn't catch your name, uh, mentioned that uh, the advisory committee couldn't reach consensus on any serious issue. So uh, it remained just a review. Uh, having joined that uh, committee, I want to point out that there was one issue, one, one issue where the committee did reach consensus, which related to the importance of transparency and participation. And of course, transparency is a central issue for democratic governance. It gives expression to the right to access to information that has been recognized by the Inter-American Human Rights Court, by the European uh, Court of Human Rights. And it's relevant to ongoing negotiations uh, currently at UNCITRAL on transparency and investor state. Um, so that by way of comment, uh, of course, reactions are welcome. Uh, by way of, of question, it's heartening to hear that uh, the investment and environment interface is being addressed uh, in your review head-on. It is a position that CL has taken, known by many of you, 
that uh, these instruments should be fundamentally redesigned so that they do not pose an obstacle to the necessary transition out of the ecological crisis that the planet is facing. And that demands the passage of the adoption of environmental laws, especially in the developing world. Um, so that's very heartening. One issue that is perhaps not as well as understood is the interface between investment and human rights. Uh, Randall Williams did mention this uh, in terms of use cohesion. It goes beyond that, and I was wondering if you could comment on whether your review has addressed uh, these issues, and if so, what kind of conclusions have you uh, arrived at? What I can say about the review is that I'm, I'm no longer with the State Department. I'm a private practitioner now for almost six years, so what I know about the uh, subcommittee on the, the advisory subcommittee on international economics is what's available publicly and perhaps some anecdotes from, from here and there. So I, I can't really speak specifically to your, your particular question, although I will stand by my original statement when you say transparency has been a point of consensus and that, that effectively does not really remain. <laughs> it's not one of the major issues. That's a fringe issue as far as I'm concerned in these agreements, particularly, although very important. It's really kind of uh, comical with the major push for transparency that you had in connection with the NAFTA. One of the there's sort of three types or categories of transparency, a access to documents, um, uh, ability to attend the hearings, and an ability to have uh, non-parties weigh in on a case through essentially amicus curiae submissions. And one of those, I think one of the very, te one very telling aspect of the transparency issue is uh, when finally, uh, actually Mexico relented and said, okay, we'll allow public access to hearings can't come into the actual room of the hearing, but can be watching these hearings through a closed circuit television at the World Bank. So in, in the first few instances when they actually allowed for this public access, the first day you had five you know, eager beaver students there you know, waiting to hear what's going to happen. And then by you know, post-lunch on the first day, you were down to one straggler. No one's interested. Even if you're involved in these cases, they're devastating to sit through sometimes. So, you know, it's, I mean, there is the notion of this panopticon, while you feel you're being watched or could be watched, so you've got to do things, you know, on the up and up. However, uh, I don't know that this, you know, aspect of the transparency has been, you know, as important as some have made it out to be. What makes it as more important than it maybe is, is that it's a safe topic to discuss at conferences by practitioners of uh, investment arbitration. So it gets a lot of air time. Um, just to keep track, we have this gentleman over here, Manas, over there, Toby. Um, David Fraser. Uh, I'm a retired solicitor, and I've I got no uh, interest to declare. Uh, clearly, um, clearly, there are tensions and misgivings uh, which have been expressed uh, really very eloquently from the perspective of the the national interests um, of, of the nations represented uh, by the by the panelists, and I think it's worth reflecting that this this bilateral system may not be working very well, and it wasn't the first choice of the international community. When, if you go back to the 1960s, the General Council of the World Bank tried to um, tried but failed to persuade the international community to adopt um, a multi-national 
um, a, a multilateral approach to the protection and the promotion of, um, of foreign investment, but failed to get a consensus. And following that, uh, the bilateral approach was plan B, if you like, uh, the exit center was set up, and then the rest is history. But since then, um, consensus has been reached uh, in the areas of human rights. There's been a, a very, there is, has been a greater consensus um, on international trade generally represented by the WTO. And my question is whether um, in view of the, the, the tensions and the disappointments, if you like, which may, may get worse rather than better uh, in the future, maybe the time has come for a more serious and sustained attempt to try and maybe roll um, investment um, protection and promotion into the WTO or some, some other uh, device adopted um, and revisit the, the, the formerly, the formerly uh, failed attempt to adopt um, a, a multilateral uh, standard. Good try. Uh, there have been several attempts on a multilateral solution, as, as you're well aware of. The OECD tried some years back to sort of prepare something for the WTO, and it was uh, one of the Singapore issues in the WTO negotiations, and it just couldn't be done, which, which makes it very interesting to look to EU what they will be able to achieve being sort of a multilateral solution in itself. But uh, I agree, it, it would be the best thing for the development of the investment protection as such, because w once you start trying to do something within an investment treaty, like US 2004, like we did in Norway, you will, you will always um, reach the argument that someone is saying that, that you know, this is not competitive um, for us, this, this leaves us in a worse uh, situation than the other investors. And what is the point in, in entering into this or negotiating this? Uh, agreements if you don't really give your investors uh, uh, the protection that is uh, posed to under the uh, treaties, that is the rational for the treaties. So that could be solved if we uh, reached a multilateral solution. But I think it's, it's very far-fetched. When it comes to the human rights issue, I think maybe the, the Ruggie report might uh, spur some discussion on that, which will be interesting. Uh, if I may add, um that, that we actually had a process in place. Uh, that's why I referred earlier to the Heiligen Dam process where the G8 met with the G5 and the G8 also uh, had an additional member, the European Commission. And one of the issues we looked at to see if we could agree on core principles. And we had several meetings on many principles that were laid out on the table and we could not come to an agreement. And the idea was, if these 13 nations could agree on core principles, it could be transferred to multilateral negotiations. But we were not able to do so. We were very far apart. Because if you look at what's happening now, the substance of, 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 of treaty principles are basically being unpacked. We, uh, def, uh, meanings are being given to these principles by lawyers. If you look at the, they are lawyers based in London, Paris, and New York. They are the ones making law, so to speak of. I mean, that is something you will never allow 
in your national jurisdiction for lawyers to make law. I mean, that's a clear conflict of interest. So that is one of the recommendations we also made to the South African government that we should incorporate these principles into South African domestic law so that judges can give meaning to these principles and not lawyers. So for, for, for multilateral negotiations at this stage, we're too far apart. Thank you. Uh, Manas Malik from the International Institute for Sustainable Development. Um, it's such a treat to have you all here because we've all been following uh, 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 developments in your countries with such a lot of interest. So I'm going to abuse my position and ask three very quick questions. Uh, one, uh, and this is uh, specifically uh, to the representatives from Australia and Norway. Um, as far as I know, there are no cases, there was no threat of cases against Australia or Norway from, from uh, underinvestment treaties. What really prompted these reviews, which is quite different from, I guess, to some extent, the South African, the US, and Ecuadorian perspective? Um, and what kind of message would you have to other European countries? What do you know uh, that they don't know? Because there are no such reviews in place, at least um, in this country. Second, a question which has always um, uh, confused me uh, is, is directed uh, to Mr. Pollock. You mentioned that um, Australia, the US FDA, did not have an investor state uh, clause because there was mutual uh, trust between the two countries on, on, on the legal uh, systems. There was also an FDA signed with Singapore uh, very shortly afterwards or thereabouts. And I wonder what was the reason to have an investor state clause there, given that Singapore, I think, is fairly comparable uh, to the Australian legal system and the US one being a common law system. And finally, uh, to all members of the panel, uh, there are about 180 countries having entered into over 2,700 BITs. About 90% of them look the same. I guess your countries are seen as a minority, I would say, under 10 countries that have these new and innovative approaches. How do you think your ideas will influence the course of um, international investment treaties in the next few years to come? Thank you. direct question, so yeah. I'll start, start with the there. first one as it was directed to Norway and, mm. and Australia. Um, when, when we terminated the negotiations of BITs, it was way back in the mid-90s, as I said, and it was because I think someone suddenly realized that this is actually reciprocal. This goes both ways, and we are capital importers as well. We have a large petroleum sector, and, and suddenly there was a threat. So I think that was where it started. And then we'll realize that we might have some constitutional concerns and, and it just went on from, from there. The reason why we started looking into it again was because there, the in Norwegian industries wanted uh, the government to start negotiating again. And also we had a lot of, uh, we were approached by a lot of governments, speci uh, specifically in the developing world, that wanted to negotiate with us. So that's why we tried to, to start a new model discussion. Um, from Australia's perspective, you're correct. The Australian government has never been the respondents in an ISDS case, and as far as we're aware, no Australian business has ever been the claimants in an ISDS case. So we are probably, uh, well, unique at least on this panel in terms of never actually being involved in 
um, the outcomes of any cases. It really is a sort of prospective look forward. As I say, what drove it was a general um, public process. The Commission, um, as I say, has been undertaking this work for a long period of time. We have a wide-ranging um, series of reviews, and it just so happened that the government um, wanted us to review trade agreement policy. Um, the majority of what our report deals with um, is around the issue of FTAs, including um, preferential tariff cuts, issues around intellectual property. This is really only one issue out of quite a wide-ranging review of trade policy um, that we undertook for the Australian government. Um, I'm happy to proffer an opinion on the second question as well. The Australian government has a trade agreement with Singapore as well. Um, you know, as the US, one has ISDS involved in it, the other one does not. Um, you know, no one pretends governments are always consistent. Um, and I can proffer a an opinion on the third as well, you know, whether or not, um, you know, what, what influence do we think um, we'll have on the world? From the Commission's point of view, our goal is only to have influence on the Australian government. Um, I don't know that we have any special insight and that other nations undertaking such, um, you know, transparent analysis, I guess, from a community-wide perspective, not a sectoral focus, would not necessarily come to the same conclusion. So. One clarification: Australia has an investor state with Singapore, or not? Yes. Yes. Yeah. As I say, there's, there's no guarantee of consistency. Yeah, I, think, I think the the answer on the U.S. side is that that wasn't probably a proposal that came from the U.S., but rather something that came up from from Australia. Yeah. Look, I mean, at the time of the negotiation of the Australia-U.S. agreement, there were a number of issues that were. Um, of particular concern to um, Australian legislators at the time. So this is, uh, although not canvassed in our report in any detail, all on the public record, there was concern about um, intellectual property provisions. There were concerns about um, uh, Australia runs a, um, a, uh, a pharmaceutical benefit scheme that provides um, sort of public purchasing and subsidy for, um, for uh, prescription medicines. There was concerns there about protecting that scheme. Um, so there's probably a number of features in the Australia-US FTA that um, sort of reflected probably Australian concerns at the time about uh, uh, the influence the US might have in negotiations. Um, otherwise, they're reasonably straightforward. Uh, it's a reasonably straightforward agreement canvassing you know, a, a whole range of WTO plus issues. There's an investment chapter in the agreement um, covering the issues that we've talked about today. It just doesn't allow for third party arbitration. Um, if I may just answer your last question as well, how will our ideas influence other developing countries uh, in the future? Um, well, they're not, we, we do not have a lot of countries uh, having taken our approach. You also have uh, Brazil having taken this approach that they will not have investor state arbitration and they will not include uh, BITs and that in future they will only have investment rules contained in their FDAs. So uh, we are few at the moment, but we have planted a seed, and seeds tend to grow if you look after it well, and we just have to spread the word. And in fact, what's been happening now, uh, as I told you, we continued with our program of uh, negotiating BITs with other African countries. And what we find now is that the other African countries that we signed agreements with are reluctant to ratify these agreements. 
So they are starting to be educated of what it is that they're in fact signing. I'm uh, Toby Landau from Essex Court Chambers uh, in, in London. Um, the question I've got is, we've heard a range of concerns articulated by the panel. Um, those concerns seem to break down into two different types of issue, which are analytically distinct. One concern is about the breadth and depth and range of substantive protections that might be afforded to investors under BITs or FTAs or similar arrangements. The other concern is a procedural one about investor state arbitration as a mechanism. What, I, what I'd like to hear from the panel is just focusing on the second of those, putting aside the substantive protections, what is it from your perspective, from a state policy perspective, what is it that is dysfunctional about the investor state arbitration process as a mechanism that means it's got to be avoided. Is there something inherent in it that is stacked against a state? Is it inherently unfair? The studies that have been done on this show empirically that it's pretty 50-50 in terms of outcomes, but clearly there is a perception. And what I'd like to know is, from, from your perspective, what is it in concrete terms that tells you, when you're advising on policy to a state, that the state cannot actually appear on an equal basis with an investor, cannot uh, utilize the flexibilities that are available in the process to get the tribunal that you want, to get the procedures that you want. Why is it that the system doesn't work? And ultimately, is it really actually a question of the substantive protections more than the process? Um, so are you going to, okay, I'll go first. Um, well, you say what's wrong with the system. Um, my question would actually be, why do we need the system? I mean, if you look at where the system is being used, the OECD countries, uh, there are very, very few OECD countries that have signed BITs with each other. It doesn't exist, very few of them. The reason being that they're quite happy with the legal certainty that exists in the national jurisdictions of the other OECD members. So those are independent judiciaries that you can trust. From South Africa's perspective, we believe that we have an independent judiciary. And the original reason why uh, 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 countries that were capital exporting countries wanted to bypass uh, um, the, the domestic judiciary was because they believe that they won't get a fair hearing, that the judiciary is loaded against the foreign investor. So what they wanted, uh, they wanted a guarantee that they would get national treatment, the same treatment, that their disputes will be treated in the same manner that nationals of, nationals of that country uh, the type of treatment those nationals will get under their judiciary. The same treatment. No discrimination against the foreign investor. That is the reason. Because previously what you have, especially what happened in South America uh, with the military regimes where you had uh, uh, the judiciary was loaded against foreign investors, where you had discrimination against foreign investors, what happened when the Shah was uh, thrown out of power in, in Russia, the same thing happened there. 
you had uh, uh, foreign investors who were being discriminated against. Now that we said, look, in South Africa, for example, we have an independent judiciary, we will treat a foreign investor in the same manner that we treat a South African national. There's absolutely no discrimination against a foreign investor. What BITs seek to do now, they say, no, you're not allowed to discriminate against a foreign investor. You must discriminate for a foreign investor. BITs give more rights to a foreign investor than a domestic investor has in, the South, Af in its South, South African jurisdiction. So the question is, once you have a fair, independent judiciary, why do you need international arbitration? So the question is not, what is wrong with, with international arbitration from South Africa's point of, view, point of view? The question is, what is wrong with the South African judiciary? Can it be pointed out that South African judiciary has discriminated against foreign investors? And we don't think it can be done. So for us, we, we, we're looking at it from a different perspective. But I can also go in after uh, colleagues here, look at what is wrong with international arbitration from, from, the perspective, from your perspective. I would like to add, um, in relation to the reciprocity uh, issue, that um, if you take a look at the FTAs uh, negotiated between the US with Peru and Colombia, and there is no reciprocity because um, the U.S. investors have higher rights than local investors on in those two countries. But those investors from Colombia and Peru do not have higher rights than the U.S. investors in the U.S. Um, so there is no reciprocity in that particular case. Um, how Ecuador could try to influence uh, other countries, uh, I would guess that's something that is being uh, trying by the current government to influence in the region through uh, a new mechanism that was created in the uh, Unión Sudamericana de Naciones, uh, the South American uh, Union. Um, there is a, a discussion going on on the creation of a regional center for dispute settlement between investors and those states. Um, and uh, I, uh, I would say that on the same line that Toby Landau has pointed out, uh, I think the problem is not really the procedural rules on arbitration, but substantive rules on BITs. And uh, that's something that has not been addressed on this initiative in the UNASUR countries. Well, I, I too would uh, take issue with your premise in that, uh, but for reasons different than what we've heard here, I, I don't think that the U.S. perspective, and you know, my personal perspective, is not that there's a procedural bias against respondent states. I think, you know, like you suggest, uh, empirical evidence suggests otherwise. But it is incumbent upon the states to take control of the policy space, including the you know, formulation of the treaties and how they're going to be represented and manage their treaty obligations. And that is, I think, where there's been a great deal of, well, there have been many shortcomings in a number of places. 
And I mean, it's somewhat interesting that the, um, some of the comments from the South African uh, representative are reminiscent of many of the NGO attacks against um, some of the NAFTA, uh, that arose out of some of the NAFTA cases um, that were directed at environmental uh, measures and the like. So I think, you know, I think there needs to be a, a balancing and, a, and an assertion of a degree of control by the state representatives after a thorough analysis of what can be done to, let's say, reform in a way that is preferred by the state, a mechanism that you know, really has to be there for lack of a better option at present. The MAI is not, uh, you know, I know Mr. Frazier suggested that's a possibility. I mean, my own presentation suggested there's a degree of convergence which might suggest we have uh, groundwork uh, laid for uh, some sort of multinational, multilateral effort on the horizon. Although I think that's some some years off, to say to say the least. But you know, what I'm talking about is more along the lines of uh, not uh, fixing something that's totally broken, but rather improving upon the existing framework. And I think many many states are starting to take that kind of initiative. You, you mentioned Colombia, and well, the in your view, there's an imbalance as between the Colombian investors in the U.S. and U.S. investors in Colombia, vis-a-vis -vis the domestic law in each place. Well, you know that may or may not be true, but I can't imagine you know a, a situation where you try to remedy that. But one thing you can say about Colombia, which is a state that I've worked with quite extensively, is they have taken uh, great steps to uh, put in place systems and really uh, training. Uh, so that they're prepared to deal with the obligations they take on. And if there are cases, which there really haven't been any that have materialized in any meaningful way yet, um, they're able to deal with them. And, and that's what many states have not ver done very effectively. Um, <coughs> uh, may I just, uh, just add one thing quickly? Um, as far as your empirical study is concerned, I mean, we, we, it shows that respondent countries are actually not so bad off. That study for me is incomplete because that study looked at actual arbitrations. And what it should look at is that investors, and in most instances, investors have more economic power than the host states where they invest. And what they tend to do they use the threat of arbitration to blackmail host states, especially when it comes to developing countries. They blackmail, either you do this or we will go to international arbitration. And that is not taken into account. Maybe one, one last question here because I had promised before because we're already running seriously over time. My name is Eliana Baraldi, I'm a Brazilian lawyer and I work with arbitration, of course not related to investment because we don't have any bilateral <coughs> treaties uh, and we are not signatories of the Washington Convention. So my question is, uh, well I had a set of questions but most of them have been already very well addressed by this panel, I have the honor of being here tonight. Well, but I have a last question to, to Mr. Galindo from Ecuador. I can't avoid addressing the issue of the experiences we have with uh, Argentina, because of course the courts has, have refused uh, to, to enforce the arbitration awards in the 
uh, like addressed by, uh, like it happens in South Africa, like uh, I understand. Maybe there is a, um, a reluctancy of the judiciary courts to accept the, the arbitration awards. And uh, my question is, uh, in, uh, is there any influence of these past experiences and uh, uh, with Argentina, I include Bolivia also, uh, in the decision of Ecuador to, to withdraw exit? And uh, if the other panelists would like to comment, uh, if there is any influence and in which extent uh, to the new path that is now being taken for the investment perspective to you or now. Thank you. Thank you. I think it's a very interesting question. Um, and, and as you're referring to the experience of Argentina, um, it's, uh, I guess, on the compliance side uh, after the awards uh, were rendered. Um, we all know that some of those awards have been uh, challenged um, and Argentina has taken steps in order to uh, escape from those obligations. Um, there has been some discussion internally in Ecuador of what's um, the right way to approach uh, uh, this issue. Uh, there was an initiative by Argentina to try um, to have uh, uh, several Latin American states to um, support Argentinians uh, position on this issue and the interpretation in particular of <coughs> articles uh, I think are uh, 53 and 54 of the exit convention um, as of today Ecuador has complied with each award that has been rendered against the Republic. As I said before, uh, the Oxy-1 case, Ecuador paid uh, around $75 million uh, out of that award. Um, in the case of Duke Energy, uh, was a claim for $25 million plus interest. The tribunal awarded uh, $5 million plus interest. Ecuador complied with that award. So as of today, there is not any award uh, rendered against the Republic on which Ecuador has not complied with. Um, we have uh, uh, today uh, some uh, arbitrations going on that could have uh, economic consequences uh, for the Republic uh, in a short period of time. Uh, we will see what happens then, uh, whether those awards are going to be challenged or there is going to be a, a, an open rejection to comply with those awards. Uh, we don't know today, um, and that's something for the um, policy actors to decide in the near future. Um, but I think uh, that's a question that we will see an answer uh, in, in a quite short time. Unless there is any urgent need expression. Um, I think given the advanced time, um, I will very quickly wrap up because um, I think we've seen a very interesting series of different, uh, uh, well, presentations in style, but also in terms of content because simply the different countries have all taken very different approaches. Um, and all of them, at least that is, I think, the very, very useful uh, uh, purpose of this, this, this panel was that to see how much reflection was behind 
what has happened. Now one may disagree with uh, the different solutions chosen, and uh, I'm quite certain uh, a number of people do, but what I think is crucial in all of this is that this reflection happens and that there is something about the information about what uh, 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 is behind, on the one hand, the BITs, on the arbitration system. Uh, I, I can't resist just at least quickly picking up Toby's point because <clears throat> his, his defense, he was the only one to, to take a little bit uh, the, the, the arbitration uh, perspective. Um, in answer to Randall's argument against that, I mean, Yes, what is wrong with the, with the South African uh, judiciary? <clears throat> I personally have no idea. I do have so some ideas, and, and I, don't, I don't want to <laughs> offend anyone, um, uh, I, but I might, uh, by saying that I do know something about um, quite a lot of uh, South American jurisdictions. And um, <clears throat> it is not necessarily something about discriminating against the investor, sorry, in a reverse discrimination in the sense of privileging the investor, which is the, the good old Argentine uh, Calvo doctrine, um, that, that is not necessarily the issue because in parts the promise was to the investor to come to the country and get a minimum standard that is guaranteed no matter what the national standard is. And having myself, unfortunately, through my father, lived through an expropriation in Brazil and the judicial recourses, um, I might say that um, I, I slightly regret that Argent uh, Brazil had not at the time um, ratified, signed it had, but not ratified, a BIT, because what I saw in terms of um, rule of law uh, was rather um, exasperating. Um, so there is an argument on both sides, I think, um, as long as we see progress on the side of reforming judiciaries in developing countries, and of course also of the administration itself in terms of good practices of administration, I'm certain that that is what everyone wants at the end, that there will be high standards of protection of investments both domestic and international. <clears throat> in the meanwhile, the question is, how do we get there? And partially, I think that it is also just discussing about it and informing about uh, the, the, the benefits and risks of the current system, the possibilities of developing it in the future that will eventually bring uh, about some change. So um, I thank you very much for your attention. I want to thank um, Lauge for helping me with invitations. Um, Janssen also for the same. It was really discussing with them that we put this together. Um, I want to really thank these panelists because many of them come from very far away just for this very nice discussion this evening. And I would thank the audience for your excellent participation. Thank you very much.